0: Uh, Let's continue on page 1000 with Mark 9, uh, verse 2 to 29. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them all and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why? Then it is written, that the Son of Man must suffer much to be rejected. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer.
1: Well, last week as we uh, looked at scriptures together, we looked at Mark chapter 8 and we learned that Jesus has some significant demands of those who are following him. We learnt that Jesus is king and that those who follow him must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. Jesus says, I'm a king but I'm going to the cross. If you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross as well. Now, I don't think we can imagine just how confronting this was for the disciples. The Disciples are their world is just completely turned upside down. they would watched Jesus over weeks and weeks heal people. they would watched crowds gather around him. There must be this great sense of expectation that Jesus was the one. Jesus was the one who would stop all the Roman oppressors. Jesus was the one who would restore Israel. Jesus was the one who would bring Jerusalem to be the city it should be. And Jesus says to them, actually, I am the king but I'm going to the cross and if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I think the disciples are absolutely in shock. This is not what we expected. It's, the world has been turned upside down. Perhaps you've had a moment like that too, where you've suddenly discovered that something about someone else or something about your circumstances or something about your world that you never thought could be true and then all of a sudden it is. And you're left reeling. You're left wondering, what what am I to think? How am I to act? What am I to do? Once we come to the end of that passage in chapter 8, we see Jesus say these words. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God and its coming in power. Jesus shifts what's going on and he speaks into their confusion. And he starts by saying, there are some of you here who will see the kingdom of God who comes in power. And I think what we'll see tonight is as we unpack this passage about the transfiguration and what follows, Jesus will give his disciples both help and hope. He will give them hope in terms of the future, but he will also give them help in terms of what it means to deny yourself, take up the cross and follow him. So come and look with me at this particular passage in chapter 9. We hear that Jesus has said, some here will see the kingdom of God has come in power. What takes place next is the kingdom of God come in power. See verse 2? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Now Mark's account is very short and very brief. It's just the way he writes But basically, they go with Jesus and Jesus is transfigured. Clearly, Jesus has the disciples in mind when he's transfigured. He's just taken three of them with him. This is a private audience, if you like. What happens when he's there? Well, his clothes become dazzling white, whiter than anyone could bleach them. And then, quite surprisingly, these Old Testament figures these great Old Testament figures suddenly appear, Elijah and Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. It must have been an extremely surreal experience for them. Up a mountain, Jesus is suddenly transformed and and here are these Old Testament great ones talking with Jesus. Peter, in the confusion, tries to make some suggestions about what they should do. That's completely ignored. And then a cloud envelops them. And a voice comes from the cloud that says, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And suddenly it's over and they're left standing there with Jesus. Well, what can we say about this nappy sand moment in Mark? What's taking place here? What's happening here? Well, I suggest to you it's providing hope. And we see that by contrasting What's taking place here with what happened on Mount Sinai? There's a couple of things we can note. Notice they're going up a mountain. That's what they did at Mount Sinai. Notice that it's on the seventh day something takes place. You see some links. There's six days mentioned around Mount Sinai, there's six days mentioned here. The seventh day is significant. There's a shining presence. Moses appears, God's instructions are given. There's kind of lots of little links here and you might like to dig them out a little bit further. There's quite an amazing array of links between what's taking place here and what takes place on Mount Sinai in Exodus. But there are also some very significant differences which I think help us understand what is taking place here. Notice in verses 2 and 3, Jesus is transfigured. He becomes dazzling white. Now, there is a dazzling whiteness at Mount Sinai, but it's a different sort of dazzling whiteness. It's God appearing. But here, it's coming out of Jesus. It's Jesus. And, of course, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read those words, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his power, by his word. Jesus is radiating God's glory. This is a different situation. This is an even greater situation than what's taking place on Mount Sinai. In fact, Jesus is evidently much greater than Moses and Elijah because they disappear and he's the one that's left. What's also significant is the words that are used. On Mount Sinai, Moses receives lots of instructions about what to do and and you can see Peter kind of fumbling around with that in in the sense of wanting to provide tents or tabernacles uh, for these three figures. Uh, He's trying to place a dwelling place with them and of course in Mount Sinai they're talking about dwelling places and God dwelling amongst his people and so there's, there's some links there but that's completely ignored and there are simple words that are spoken, profound words which are spoken not about tabernacles, not about tents, not about robes, not about priests. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. There's not lots of words, but the words are profound. This is my son whom I love. Listen to This is the kingdom of God come in power. And what we see here is God's power being displayed in Jesus. God's reign being displayed in Jesus. Jesus as king over all things. The disciples here are given a taste of the resurrected king the King who shines in glory and power and honour, the King who is holy, the King who is over all things. Now, it's interesting to see what Peter, how Peter reflects on this incident a little bit later on. After the resurrection, uh, he starts to think about this incident and in 2 Peter chapter 1, we read about his reflections on what took place here. In verse 16, we read, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we were told about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received honour and glory from God the Father when his voice came from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. This whole incident gives Peter great confidence in what Jesus has done. He's seen his majesty. He's heard his voice. The word is made more certain. Jesus is saying, Look here. Here's a vision for the future. Here's hope. I know I'm going to the cross and I know I've called you to follow me to the cross. But look at the future. Look at the future where I will reign supreme. Look at the future and the hope that I will bring. I think the transfiguration is about encouraging the disciples, asking them to hold on in the midst of their confusion and and a lack of clarity about what's taking place. Jesus is saying, look, something greater is coming. Something wonderful is coming. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Take up your cross and follow me. I know it's going to be hard, but there is a hope and there is a future. And I think in the same way, this is meant to encourage us, to remind us that there is a hope and there is a future, that Jesus has risen as the ascended king, as the one who is over all, that he sees the future, that he is God over all the universe. And I think that's really important for us to remember. I know in my own life, there have been plenty of times where I kind of just wanted to give up on the Christian life. I've been confronted with situations where I think, no, I don't know whether I want to continue with this. Like, this is just too hard. This idea of denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus. I'd rather choose something else. I don't want to be in this position. I don't know that it's all true. I remember the moment when the doctors came out and my little brother, who's 18 months younger than me, was in hospital, just over here at Concord. And uh, three little kids, one of them in arms, his wife was there. The doctors came and grabbed me and his wife and took us into a room. My brother was suffering internal bleeding. They couldn't find where he was bleeding from. They basically called us into the room and said, look, we can't find it. We think he's dead. A little bit later on, we heard... Some of the nurses talking about what had taken place, and they said he was dead. And so I can remember that moment. I can remember thinking, "Well, what, you know, there's three little kids here. You know, what, what's this about? Where's God in all of this? This is crazy." And then I remembered this bit, this this hope of the future. I didn't remember this particular bit, but I remembered that bit in in Revelation chapter 21 where it talks about there will be no more tears, no more pain, that that there is a hope, there is a, a future which God holds us in. And so I said to God, look, I just have to trust you. I don't understand, I don't get what's going on here. But I place my hope in you. And just unbelievably and remarkably, after 10 days of being in a coma, he finally woke up. And didn't actually know what happened. The weirdest thing about it all was he woke up and said, I was just on a beach having a holiday. The rest of us were just completely stressed. And I've just been on a holiday. And God has a strange sense of humour, I think, sometimes. But anyway. Now, you, you, of course, face circumstances like that where things seem difficult. And perhaps it's circumstances like that or perhaps it's circumstances where you find yourself... And you've taken up the cross and you're following Jesus and it's just not easy. And this picture of the transfiguration says, look, look, something better is coming. There is a better day. There is a better day. Now the disciples still have lots to learn. Jesus wants to give them hope of a future but he also wants to teach them something about what it means to take up their cross and follow him. There's this encouragement, but there also is a challenge. And from this wonderful mountaintop experience, this great celebration of God's glory, we kind of descend into fear and into evil. And the disciples need all the help they can get. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man rises from the dead. This, of course, through confusion and uh, they kept them matter to themselves, but they, well, what's this rising from the dead mean? And then they kind of get distracted with, with Elijah and they say, well, like, what, what, what's this business about Elijah? Why do the teachers of the law say Elijah come first? You can see kind of they really, really don't know what's going on. And so Jesus takes some time to explain a little bit about Elijah. He says, yes, well, Elijah does come first and restore all things. But why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected? Now, it's, it's, a, it's a strange and odd conversation and I don't think Mark lets us into much of this conversation. Matthew kind of helps us understand it a bit. Uh, it seems like Elijah uh, and John the Baptist are linked John the Baptist is acting in the spirit of Elijah. And so there's some strong links there and, and perhaps that's what Jesus is referring to here. And as he speaks about Elijah, he's thinking of what's happened to John the Baptist. See there in verse 13. But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done, every, done to him everything they wished just as it was written about. And so John the Baptist is dead. He followed Jesus. He denied himself and he's dead. But what interests me about this is not so much Jesus' answer about Elijah, it's the fact that he continues to say to these disciples, I want to steer you in a slightly different direction. Why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? The impression I get is that the disciples are kind of Asking the wrong questions. They're kind of caught up with the peripheral things, the things that are not really important. And Jesus drags them back and says, no, 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 I want you to focus on something different. The Son of Man must suffer and be rejected. I want you to deny yourself and focus on me. I want you to focus on what's important to me, not what's important to you. Now perhaps that is something we need to hear. Sometimes we come with many questions and they're quite valid questions. Jesus answers these questions here. But sometimes we just actually need to say, "Uh, what is Jesus' question? What is he asking of me? Not what am I asking of him? And so the disciples are called back again to consider what Jesus is about to do for them. Because they haven't quite got what it means to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus. And that becomes even more evident as the next situation unfolds. There's that terrible account of that young boy who's demon-possessed. As they come further down the mountain, as they descend further into evil and into fear, they come across the disciples and they see a large crowd around the disciples and the teachers of the law are arguing and they see Jesus and they run towards him and, oh, he's this great teacher. The question's asked, what are you arguing about? And then this man answers from the crowd, I've bought my son. He's possessed by a spirit. It's robbed him of his speech. And whenever this spirit seizes him, it throws him to the ground, he foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, he becomes rigid. And I've asked your disciples to to throw out this spirit and it hasn't happened. Now, we're not used to this kind of picture. This is not something we see every day here. And we're not aware of it anyway. Where I grew up overseas, this was a common occurrence. I remember walking past a, a poor woman who had been locked in a cage that she she could often open when spirits overtook her. It was quite scary. I always knew I had the protection of Jesus, which was wonderful. But this this is not unusual in some senses. This is real. This happens. This is a bit unusual in, in the sense that Jesus will go on to say this is a difficult one. But the disciples are confronted here with a power that they're not used to. They they don't know what to do. I mean, sure, they've cast out demons before, but something's gone wrong here. And Jesus points out what's gone wrong in verse 19. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? He's frustrated. How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Now, the disciples have had success before in casting out demons. Is it just that this one's a bit more difficult than normal? Why did they fail? Well, Jesus says their lack of belief. Now, do you think it's their lack of belief in the fact that it should happen? Of course not. They've been trying to throw out this demon. They believe it can happen. They've seen it happen in other places, but something's wrong with their belief. Something's gone wrong with the way they're believing. And it would seem to be they believe the words that they're saying, but they've lost sight of the one they believe in. They've lost sight of Jesus. They've lost sight of His power. They're not doing it in His name, they're reciting the words but they're using their own power. It's like they've got the ritual right, but they haven't placed their faith in the one who is truly powerful. And as soon as Jesus is brought into the scene, something else happens. Verse 20, they bring the boy to Jesus. The spirit throws the boy into a convulsion Jesus asks tenderly, how long has it been like this? And the father says, from childhood. You can just imagine the pain of the, the father here. He's tried to throw himself into the water. He's tried to throw himself into the fire. He's tried to, he's tried, the spirit has tried to kill him. But please take pity on me. And he says, please take pity on me if you can. And Jesus says these very interesting words, these comforting words in many ways. Everything is possible for one who believes. And Listen to the Father's words in verse 24. I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. You see, the Father says, I believe. I believe you can do that, but actually I don't have the strength to really believe. I actually need your help even at this point. I need your help to believe. I'm so weak I can't even get that right. And so we see the Father's great humility as he comes towards Jesus. The humility that's been lacking in the disciples who have been trying to throw this demon out. And this demon is thrown out it shrieks, it convulses leaves him violently and then Jesus takes the young man by the hand and lifts him to his feet notice how honest the father is in his unbelief if there's anything you can do if if there's any way you can help me, please help please help me I, I, I don't know what else to do it's a weakness, it's an honesty which is just beautiful. And what this man is doing is saying, I'm going to deny myself and cast myself on you. It's not about me, it's about you. And he gives his boy to Jesus. He says, please help, because I can't do it. As the incident concludes we read these words as the disciples enter into a house they ask Jesus privately why would we not cast why couldn't we cast it out he said well this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer now, that's a really interesting statement for Jesus to make because did you notice in the incident he actually hasn't prayed he just cast the demon out he doesn't actually pray he doesn't you know, come before God and pray he just casts the demon out But I think what we're meant to see here is that he's saying to the disciples, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to do things in my name, if you're going to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you're going to have to be completely dependent on me. You're going to have to trust in my power. You're going to have to trust me with everything that you've got. You can't do it by yourself. You have to come and lay yourself before me in weakness because you have no chance of taking up your cross daily and following Jesus. You can't do it. You've got to come before me in prayer and say, please help me in my unbelief. Help me. I need help. I'm too weak. I can't do it. And I think Jesus calls us to that spot too. Jesus calls us to the position where he gives us hope and he says, this is the future, but if you want to follow me, if you want to pick up your cross, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to lay your life down and you're going to have to say, I cannot do it by myself. I need help. Help me in my unbelief. Well, tonight we've seen the wonderful truth that the kingdom of God does come in power. We've seen it in the transfiguration, but we've also seen it in the life of this boy. The kingdom of God does come with power and Jesus does give us a hope and he does give us help to take up our cross daily and follow him. Can I invite you to do that tonight? Place your hope in Jesus and ask him for help. That you may be able to take up your cross daily and follow him. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word this evening and we thank you for the way that you speak to us through it. We pray that as we continue to think about these words and as we think about them in our lives and as in our lives as they unfold in the coming week, we pray that we would be people who are able to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow you, not in our own power, but in your power. Father, where we find unbelief in our own lives, we ask that we would continue to come to you and say, help us in our unbelief. Father, we thank you for the wonderful truth and the hope that you've given us this evening. Father, may that hope sustain us as we continue to follow you, as we continue to take up your cross, deny ourselves and follow you to the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name.